Chapter twenty five of History of the World War by Francis March and Richard Beamish. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter twenty five Canada's Part in the Great War by Colonel George G. Nasmith, CMG, Toronto. When, in August nineteen fourteen, war burst suddenly upon a peaceful world like distant thunder in a cloudless summer sky, Canada, like the rest of the British Empire, was profoundly startled. She had been a peace-loving, non-military nation, satisfied to develop her great natural resources, and live in harmony with her neighbors, taking little interest in European affairs. Canadians, in fact, were a typical colonial people, with little knowledge even of the strength of the ties that linked them to the British Empire. Upon declaration of war by Great Britain, Canada immediately sprang to arms. The love of country and empire, which had been no obvious thing, burst forth in a patriotic fervor as deep as it was spontaneous and genuine. The call to action was answered with an enthusiasm the like of which had rarely, if ever, been seen in any British colony. The Canadian government called for 20,000 volunteers, enough for a single division, as Canada's contribution to the British Army. In less than a month, 40,000 men had volunteered and the minister of militia was compelled to stop the further enrollment of recruits. From the gold fields of the Yukon, from the slopes of the Rockies on the west, to the surf-beaten shores of the Atlantic on the east, from workshop and mine, from farm, office, and forest, Canada's sons trooped to the colors. It will be the everlasting glory of the men of the first Canadian contingent that they needed no spur, either of victory or defeat, they volunteered because they were quick to perceive that the existence of their empire was threatened by the action of the most formidable nation in arms that the world had ever seen they had been stirred by the deepest emotion of a race the love of country a site for concentration camp was chosen at valcartier nestling among the blue laurentian hills sixteen miles from quebec and convenient to that point of embarkation Within four days, 60,000 men had arrived at Valcartier. In another week, there were 25,000 men. From centers all over Canada, troop trains, each carrying hundreds of embryo soldiers, sped towards Valcartier and deposited their burdens on the miles of sidings that had sprung up as though by magic. The rapid evolution of that wild and wooded river valley into a model military camp was a great tribute to the engineering skill and energy of civilians who had never done the like before one day an army of woodmen were seen felling trees the next day the stumps were torn out and the hollows filled on the third day long rows of tents in regular camp formation covered the ground and on the fourth day they were occupied by civilian soldiers concentrated upon learning the rudiments of the art and science of war streets were laid out miles of water pipes sunk in machine-made ditches were connected to the hundreds of taps and shower baths electric light was installed three miles of rifle butts completed, and in two weeks the camp was practically finished, the finest camp that the first Canadians were destined to see. The building of Valcartier camp was characteristic of the driving power, vision, and genius of the Minister of Militia, General Sir Sam Hughes. Of the 33,000 men assembled at Valcartier, the great majority were civilians without any previous training in warfare. About 7,000 Canadians had taken part in the South African War 15 years before, and some of these, together with a few ex-regulars who had seen active service, were formed into the Princess Patricia's Light Infantry. 
Otherwise, with the exception of the 3,000 regulars that formed the standing army of Canada, the men and most of the officers were amateurs. It was therefore a feat that the Canadian people could well afford to be proud of that in the great crisis they were able, through their aggressive minister of militia, not only to gather up these forces so quickly, but that they willingly and without delay converted their industries to the manufacture of all necessary army equipment. Factories all over the country immediately began turning out vast quantities of khaki cloth, uniforms, boots, ammunition, harness, wagons, and the thousand and one articles necessary for an army. Before the end of September 1914, the Canadian Expeditionary Force had been roughly hewn into shape. Battalions had been regrouped and remodeled, officers transferred and retransferred, intensive training carried on, and all the necessary equipment assembled. On October 3, 1914, 33 Atlantic liners carrying the contingent of 33,000 men comprising infantry, artillery, cavalry, engineers, signalers, medical corps, army service supply and ammunition columns, together with horses, guns, ammunition, wagons, motor lorries, and other essentials, sailed from Gaspe Basin on the Quebec seaboard to the battlefront of Europe. It was probably the largest convoy that had ever been gathered together, the modern armada in three long lines, each line one and a half miles apart, led by cruisers and with battleships on the front, rear, and either flank, presented a thrilling spectacle. The voyage proved uneventful, and on October 14th the convoy steamed into Plymouth, receiving an extraordinary ovation by the sober English people, who seemed temporarily to have gone wild with enthusiasm. Back of that demonstration was the conviction that blood had proved thicker than water, and that the apparently flimsy ties that bound the colonies to the empire were bonds that were unbreakable. The German conviction that the British colonies would fall away and the British Empire disintegrate upon the outbreak of a great war had proved fallacious. It was, moreover, a great demonstration of how the much-vaunted German navy had already been swept from the seas and rendered impotent by the might of Britain's fleet. A few days later the Canadians had settled down on Salisbury Plain in southern England for the further course of training necessary before proceeding to France. There, for nearly four months in the cold and the wet, in the fog and mud, in crowded, dripping tents, and under constantly dripping skies, they carried on and early gave evidence of their powers of endurance and unquenchable spirit. Lord Roberts made his last public appearance before this division, and addressing the men said in part, Three months ago we found ourselves involved in this war, a war not of our own seeking, but one which those who have studied Germany's literature and Germany's aspirations knew was a war which we should inevitably have to deal with sooner or later. The prompt resolve of Canada to give us such valuable assistance has touched us deeply. We are fighting a nation which looks upon the British Empire as a barrier to her development, and has, in consequence, long contemplated our overthrow and humiliation. To attain that end she has manufactured a magnificent fighting machine, and is straining every nerve to gain victory. It is only by the most determined efforts that we can defeat her and this superb German military organization, created by years of tireless effort, was that which Canadian civilians had volunteered to fight. Was it any wonder that some of the most able leaders doubted whether men and officers, no matter how brave and intelligent, could ever equal the inspired barbarians who, even at that very moment, were battling with the finest British and French regulars and pressing them steadily towards Paris? In a short chapter of this kind, attempting to deal with Canada's effort in the Great War, 
it is obviously impossible to go into detail or give more than the briefest of historical pictures consequently much that is fascinating can be given but a passing glance for greater detail larger works must be consulted nevertheless it is well to try and view in perspective events as they occurred in order to obtain some idea of their relative importance in february nineteen fifteen the first canadian division crossed the channel to france and began to obtain front-line experiences in a section of the line just north of neuve chapelle while the first division had been going through its course of training in england a second division had been raised in canada and arrived in england shortly after the first left it during that period the conflict in europe had passed through certain preliminary phases most of them fortunate for the allies the unexpected holding up of the german armies by the belgians had prevented the enemy from gaining the channel ports of calais and boulogne in the first rush later on the battle of the marne had resulted in the rolling back of the german waves until they had subsided on a line roughly drawn through dixmude ypres armentiers la basse lens and southward to the french border and the trench phase of warfare had begun the british held the section of front between ypres and la basse about thirty miles in length the germans unfortunately occupying all the higher grounds shortly after the arrival of the canadian division the british concentrating the largest number of guns that had hitherto been gathered together on the french front made an attack on the germans at neuve chapelle this attack only partially successful in gains of terrain served to teach both belligerents several lessons it showed the british the need for huge quantities of high explosives with which to blast away wire and trenches and that in an attack rifle fire no matter how accurate was no match for unlimited numbers of machine guns it showed the enemy what could be done with concentrated artillery fire a lesson that he availed himself of with deadly effect a few weeks later though canadian artillery took part in that bombardment the infantry was not engaged in the battle of neuve chapelle it received its baptism of fire however under excellent conditions and after a month's experience in trench warfare was taken out of the line for rest the division was at the time under the command of a british general and the staff included several highly trained british staff officers nevertheless the commands were practically all in the hands of canadians lawyers businessmen real estate agents newspaper men and other amateur soldiers who in civilian life as militiamen had spent more or less time in the study of the theory of warfare this should always be kept in mind in view of subsequent events as well as the fact that these amateur soldiers were faced by armies whose officers and men professionals in the art and science of warfare regarded themselves as invincible in mid-april the canadians took over a sector some five thousand yards long in the ypres salient on the left they joined up with french colonial troops and on the right with the british thus there were canadian and french colonial troops side by side toward the end of april the germans reverted to supreme barbarism and used poison gas undismayed though suffering terrible losses the heroic canadians fought the second battle of ypres and held the line in the face of the most terrific assaults when the news of the second battle of ypres reached canada her people were profoundly stirred the blight of war had at last fallen heavily destroying her first-born but sorrow was mixed with pride and exultation that canadian men had proved a match for the most scientifically trained troops in europe as fighters canadians had at once leaped into front rank british 
Scotch, and Irish blood with British traditions had proved greater forces than the scientific training and philosophic principles of the Huns. It was a glorious illustration of the axiom, right is greater than might, which the German had in his pride reversed to read, might is right. It was prophetic of what the final issue of a contest based on such divergent principles was to be. So in those days Canadian men and women held their heads high and carried on their war work with increased determination, stimulated by the knowledge that they were contending with an enemy more remorseless and implacable than those terrible creatures which used to come to them in their childish dreams. It was felt that a nation which could scientifically and in cold blood resort to poison gases, contrary to all accepted agreements of civilized countries, to gain its object, must be fought with all the determination, resources, and skill which it was possible to employ. Canada's heart had been steeled. She was now in the war with her last dollar and her last man, if need be. She had begun to realize that failure in Europe would simply transfer the struggle with German fighting hordes to our Atlantic provinces and eastern American states. The famous Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry was originally composed of soldiers who had actually seen service and were therefore veterans. Incidentally, they were older men, and most of them were married, but the call of the Empire was insistent. In the winter of 1914 to 1915, the British line in Flanders was very thin, and the PPCLIs, being a trained regiment, was sent over to France several weeks before the 1st Canadian Division. It soon earned the name of a regiment of extraordinarily hard-fighting qualities and was all but wiped out before spring arrived. The immortal story of this gallant unit must be read in detail if one wishes to obtain any clear conception of their deeds of valor, of what it is possible for men to go through and live. However, it was but one regiment whose exploits were later equaled by other Canadian regiments, and it would therefore be invidious to select any one for special praise. After operating as a separate regiment for nearly two years and having been recruited from the regular Canadian depots in England, it became a composition like other Canadian regiments and was finally incorporated into the 3rd Canadian Division. In the spring of 1915, a Canadian cavalry brigade was formed in France made up of Strascona's Horse, King Edward's Horse, the Royal Canadian Dragoons, and Canadian Mounted Rifles. After the Second Battle of Ypres, the Canadians, after resting and reorganizing, were moved to a section of the line near La Bassa. Here they fought the Battle of Festubert, a series of infantry attacks and artillery bombardments which gained little ground. Shortly afterwards, they fought the Battle of Givenchy, equally futile, as far as material results were concerned. Both of these battles had the double object of feeling out the strength of the German line and of obtaining the Aubers Ridge, should the attacks prove successful. In both battles the Canadians showed great aptitude for attack and tenacity in their hold of captured trenches. They also learned the difficult lesson that if an objective is passed by the infantry, the latter enter the zone of their own artillery fire and suffer accordingly. In September 1915, the second Canadian division arrived in Flanders and took its place at the side of the first Canadian division, then occupying the Ploegsteert section in front of the Messinas Vicheta Ridge. The rest of the winter was spent more or less quietly by both divisions in the usual trench warfare and battling with mud, water, and weather. It was here that the Canadians evolved the trench raid, a method of cutting off a section of enemy trench 
killing or taking prisoners all the enemy inhabitants destroying it and returning with little or no loss to the attacking party this method was quickly copied from one end of the franco-british line to the other it proved a most valuable method of gaining information and served to keep the troops during the long cold winter months stimulated and keen when otherwise life would have proved most dull and uninteresting the third canadian division was formed in january and february nineteen sixteen one infantry brigade was composed of regiments which had been acting as canadian corps troops including the princess patricia's canadian light infantry and the royal canadian regiment the second infantry brigade was made up of six canadian mounted rifle regiments which had comprised a part of the cavalry brigade these two brigades of the third division under the command of general mercer of toronto almost immediately began front-line work during this period the germans making desperate efforts extending over weeks of time did their utmost to break through the french line at verdun and exhaust the french reserves to offset these objects a fourth british army was assembled which took over still more of the french line while a series of british attacks intended to pin down the german reserves all along the line was inaugurated one of these developed into a fight for the craters a terrible struggle at st eloy where blasted from their muddy ditches with rifles and machine-guns choked with mud and water with communications lost and lack of artillery support the men of the second canadian division fought gamely from april sixth to april twentieth but were forced to yield the craters and part of their front-line system to the enemy notwithstanding this the men of the second canadian division at st eloy fought quite as nobly as had their brothers of the first division just a year before at the glorious battle of ypres a few miles farther north but it was a bitter experience the lesson of failure is as necessary in the education of a nation as that of success on june second and third the third canadian division which then occupied part of the line in the ypres salient including hoog and sanctuary wood was smothered by an artillery bombardment unprecedented in length and intensity trenches melted into irregular heaps of splintered wood broken sandbags and mangled bodies fighting gallantly the men of this division fell in large numbers where they stood the best infantry in the world is powerless against avalanches of shells projected from greatly superior numbers of guns the canadian trenches were obliterated not captured by this time britain had thoroughly learned her lesson and now countless shells and guns were pouring into france from great britain where thousands of factories new and old toiled night and day under the inspiring energy of mr lloyd george on june thirteenth in a terrific counter-attack the canadians in turn blasted the huns from the trenches taken from them a few days before the first canadian division recaptured and consolidated all the ground and trench systems that had been lost thus ended the second year of canadian military operations in the ypres salient each of the three canadian divisions had been tried by fire in that terrible region from which it was said no man ever returned the same as he entered it beneath its torn and rifted surface thousands of canadians lie mute testimony to the fact that love of liberty is still one of the most powerful yet most intangible things that man is swayed by a very distinguished french general speaking of the part that canada was playing in the war said nothing in the history of the world has ever been known quite like it my countrymen are fighting within fifty miles of paris to push back and chastise a vile and leprous race which has violated the chastity of beautiful france but the australians at the dardanelles 
and the Canadians at Ypres, fought with supreme and absolute devotion for what to many must have seemed simple abstractions, and that nation which will support for an abstraction the horror of this war of all wars will ever hold the highest place in the records of human valor. The 4th Canadian Division reached the Ypres region in August 1916, just as the other three Canadian divisions were leaving for the Somme battlefield further south. For a while it occupied part of the line near Kemmel, but soon followed the other divisions to the Somme, there to complete the Canadian Corps. It may be stated here that though a 5th Canadian Division was formed and thoroughly trained in England, it never reached France. Canada, until the passing of the Military Service Act on July 6, 1917, depended solely on voluntary enlistment. Up to that time, Canada, with a population of less than 9 million, had recruited 525,000 men by voluntary methods. Of this number, 356,986 had actually gone overseas. Voluntary methods at last, however, failed to supply drafts in sufficient numbers to keep up the strength of the depleted reserves in England, and in consequence, conscription was decided upon. By this means, 56,000 men were drafted in Canada before the war ended. In the meantime, through heavy fighting, the demand for drafts became so insistent that the 5th Canadian Division in England had to be broken up to reinforce the exhausted fighting divisions in France. It would be an incomplete summary of Canada's part in the war that did not mention some of the men who have been responsible for the success of Canadian arms. It is obviously impossible to mention all those responsible. It is even harder to select a few. But looking backward, one sees two figures that stand forth from all the rest, General Sir Sam Hughes in Canada and General Sir Arthur Currie, commander of the Canadian Corps. To General Sir Sam Hughes must be given the credit of having foreseen war with Germany and making such preparations as were possible in a democracy like Canada. He it was of all others who galvanized Canada into action. He it was whose enthusiasm and driving power were so contagious that they affected not only his subordinates but the country at large. Sir Sam Hughes will be remembered for the building of Valcartier Camp and the dispatch of the first Canadian contingent but he did things of just as great importance. It was he who sought and obtained for Canada huge orders of munitions from Great Britain, and thereby made it possible for Canada to weather the financial depression, pay her own war expenditures, and emerge from the war in better financial shape than she was when the war broke out. It was easy to build up a business once established, but the chief credit must go to the man who established it. Sir Sam Hughes was also responsible for the selection of the officers who went overseas with the 1st Canadian contingent. Among those officers, who subsequently became divisional commanders, were General Sir Arthur Currie, General Sir Richard Turner, General Sir David Watson, Generals Lipset, Mercer, and Hughes. Of these generals, Sir Arthur Currie, through sheer ability, ultimately became commander of the Canadian Corps. This big, quiet man, whose consideration, prudence, and brilliancy had won the absolute confidence of Canadian officers and men alike, welded the Canadian Corps into a fighting force of incomparable effectiveness, a force which was set the most difficult tasks and, as events proved, not in vain. When Canada entered the war, she had a permanent force of 3,000 men. When hostilities ceased on November 11, 1918, Canada had sent overseas 418,980 soldiers. In addition to this, about 15,000 men had joined the British Royal Air Service, 
several hundred physicians and veterinarians as well as two hundred nurses had been supplied to the british army while many hundreds of university men had received commissions in the imperial army and navy in september october and november nineteen sixteen the canadian corps of four divisions which had been welded by general bing and general curry into an exceedingly efficient fighting machine took its part in the battle of the somme a battle in which the british army assumed the heaviest share of the fighting and casualties and shifted the greatest burden of the struggle from the shoulders of the french to their own the british army had grown vastly in power and efficiency and in growing had taken over more and more of the line from the french the battle of the somme was long and involved the franco-british forces were everywhere victorious and by hard and continuous fighting forced the hun back to the famous hindenburg line it was in this battle that the tanks evolved by the british were used for the first time and played a most important part in breaking down wire entanglements and rounding up the machine-gun nests the part played in this battle by the canadian corps was conspicuous and it especially distinguished itself by the capture of chrysalis although the battles which the canadian corps took part in subsequently were almost invariably both successful and important they can be merely mentioned here the canadian corps now known everywhere to consist of shock troops second to none on the western front was frequently used as the spearhead with which to pierce particularly tough parts of the enemy defenses on april nineteenth to thirteenth nineteen seventeen the canadian corps with some british support captured vimy ridge a point which had hitherto proved invulnerable when a year later the germans north and south swept the british line to one side in gigantic thrusts they were unable to disturb this key point vimy ridge which served as an anchor to the sagging line the canadian corps was engaged at arlot and fresnoy in april and may and was effective in the operations around lens in june again on august fifteenth it was engaged at hill seventy and fought with conspicuous success in that toughest most difficult and most heartbreaking of all battles Pechendale. in nineteen eighteen the canadian cavalry brigade won distinction in the german offensive of march and april on august twelfth nineteen eighteen the canadian corps was engaged in the brilliantly successful battle of amain which completely upset the german offensive plan on august twenty sixth to twenty eighth the canadians captured monchy le preux and in one of the hammer blows which foch rained on the german front were given the most difficult piece of the whole line to pierce the quiant de shore line this section of the famous hindenburg line was considered by the enemy to be absolutely impregnable but was captured by the canadians on september third and fourth with this line outflanked a vast german retreat began which ended on november eleventh with the signing of the armistice to the canadians fell the honors of breaking through the first hindenburg line by the capture of cambrai on october first to ninth they also took Douai on October 19th and Denna on October 20th. On October 26th to November 2nd, they had the signal honor of capturing Velassines, thereby being the first troops to break through the fourth and last Hindenburg line. It was surely a curious coincidence that Mons, from which the original British army, the best trained, it is said, that has taken the field since the time of Caesar, began its retreat in 1914, should have been the town which Canadian civilians were destined to recapture. The war began for the professional British Army, the Contemptibles, when it began its retreat from Mons in 1914. The war ended for the British Army at the very same town four years and three months later, when on the day the armistice was signed, the men from Canada re-entered it. Was it coincidence, or was it fate?
During the war, the Canadian troops had sustained 211,000 casualties. 152,000 had been wounded, and more than 50,000 had made the supreme sacrifice. Put into different language, this means that the total number of Canadians killed was just a little greater than the total number of infantrymen in their corps of four divisions. The extent of the work involved in the care of the wounded and sick of the Canadians overseas may be gathered from the fact that Canada equipped and sent across the Atlantic seven general hospitals, ten stationary hospitals, sixteen field ambulances, three sanitary sections, four casualty clearing stations, and advanced and base depots of medical stores. The personnel of these medical units consisted of 1,612 officers, 1,994 nursing sisters, and 12,382 of other ranks, or a total of about 16,000. This will give some conception of the importance of the task involved in the caring for the sick and wounded of about 90,000 fighting troops, some 60,000 auxiliary troops behind the lines, and the reserve depots in England. The work of the Canadian Red Cross Society included the building and equipping of auxiliary hospitals to those of the Canadian Army Medical Corps, providing of extra and emergency stores of all kinds, recreation huts, ambulances and lorries, drugs, serums, and surgical equipment calculated to make hospitals more efficient. The looking after the comfort of patients in hospitals providing recreation and entertainment to the wounded, and dispatching regularly to every Canadian prisoner parcels of food, as well as clothes, books, and other necessities. The Canadian Red Cross expended on goods for prisoners in 1917 nearly $600,000. In all the Canadian Red Cross distributed since the beginning of the war to November 23, 1918, $7,631,100. The approximate total of voluntary contributions from Canada for war purposes was over $90 million. The following figures, quoted from tables issued by the Department of Public Information at Ottawa, show the exports in certain Canadian commodities having a direct bearing on the war for the last three fiscal years before the war, 1912, 13, and 14, and for the last fiscal year, 1918, and illustrates the increase during this period in the value of these articles exported. Values Foodstuffs Average for 1912, 13, and 14, dollars $143,173,374. Clothing, metals, leather, etc. Average value for 1912, 1913, and 1914,45,822,717. $215,873,357. Total. Average for 1912, 13, and 14, $188,956,091. For 1918, $833,389,047. As practically all of the increase of food and other materials went to Great Britain, France, and Italy, the extent of Canada's effort in upholding the Allied cause is clearly evident and was by no means a small one. The trade of Canada for 1914 was one billion dollars. For the fiscal year of 1917 to 18, it was two and one half billion dollars. Approximately 60 million shells were made in Canada during the war. Shortly after the outbreak of hostilities, a shell committee was formed in Canada to really act as an agent for the British War Office in placing contracts. The first shells were shipped in December 1914, 
and by the end of May 1915, approximately 400 establishments were manufacturing shells in Canada. By November 1915, orders had been placed by the Imperial Government to the value of $300 million, and an Imperial Munitions Board, replacing the Shell Committee, was formed, directly responsible to the Imperial Ministry of Munitions. During the war period, Canada purchased from her bank savings one trillion six hundred and sixty nine million three hundred and eighty one thousand of Canadian war loans. Estimates of expenditures for the fiscal year ending march thirty first, nineteen nineteen, demonstrated the thoroughness with which Canada went to war. They follow pay of one hundred and ten thousand troops in Canada and two hundred and ninety thousand in England and France. Expenditure in Canada fifty million one hundred and eighty seven thousand five hundred dollars expenditure overseas seventy million three hundred and twelve thousand five hundred dollars total expenditures one hundred and twenty million five hundred thousand dollars assigned pay overseas troops expenditure in canada fifty four million dollars total expenditures fifty four million dollars separation allowances expenditure in canada $21,750,000, expenditure overseas, $6,000,000, total expenditures, $27,750,000. Rations, Canada, 50 cents per day, England, 38 and one-half cents per day. Expenditure in Canada, $20,075,000, expenditure overseas, $21,000,000, total expenditures, $41,075,000. Clothing and necessaries, Expenditure in Canada, $19,080,000. Total expenditures, $19,080,000. Outfit allowances, officers and nurses. Expenditure in Canada, $1,000,000. Expenditure overseas, $700,000. Total expenditures, $1,700,000. Equipment including harness, vehicles, tanks, blankets, but not rifles, machine guns, etc. Expenditure in Canada, $20,000,000. Total expenditures, $20 million. Ordinance service. Expenditure overseas, $1,800,000. Total expenditures, $1,800,000. Medical services. Expenditure in Canada, $5 million. Total expenditures, $5 million. Ammunition. Expenditure in Canada, $5 million. Total expenditure, $5 million. Machine guns. Expenditure in Canada, $2 million. Total expenditure, $2 million. Ocean transport. Expenditure in Canada, $4,612,500. Total expenditure, $4,612,500. Railway transport. Expenditure in Canada, $11,062,500. Expenditure overseas, $450,000. Total expenditures, $11,512,500. Forage. Expenditure in Canada, $450,000. Total expenditures, $450,000. Veterinary service, remounts. Expenditure overseas, $3 million. Total expenditure, $3 million. Engineer works, housing. Expenditure in Canada, $2,750,000. Expenditure overseas, $1,250,000. Total expenditures, $4,000,000. Civilian employees, Expenditure in Canada, $2,920,000. Expenditure overseas, $750,000. Total expenditures, $8,670,000.
sundries including recruiting censors custom duties etc expenditure in canada three million dollars total expenditures three million dollars overseas printing and stationery expenditure overseas three hundred thousand dollars total expenditures three hundred thousand dollars general expenses overseas expenditures overseas one million eight hundred thousand dollars total expenditures one million eight hundred thousand dollars maintenance of troops in france at nine shilling four pence each day expenditures overseas one hundred and fifteen million dollars total expenditures one hundred and fifteen million dollars total expenditure in canada two hundred and seventeen million eight hundred and eighty seven thousand five hundred dollars expenditure overseas two hundred and twenty five million one hundred and sixty two thousand five hundred dollars total expenditures four hundred and forty three million fifty thousand dollars end of chapter twenty five